Okay. Uh, just a comment. Uh, here's our chart again. Uh, I, I really went very quickly over something on that chart. I just wanted to, to go over it again because I find it very intriguing with these these uh, this fivefold pattern here, both the first world and the second world. Uh, actually, uh, each column corresponds nicely with an aspect of systematic theology. So you got again theology proper, creation, uh, uh, anthropology, uh, and then with the fall, our marginology, and with the conflict of C, where remnants redeemed, redemption, and then judgment and eschatology with the end. So very, uh, very, very interesting. So you can say you had a course where Beal compared the first world and the second world, and um, <coughs> Contended there was fivefold systematic theology in it. So, anyway, <clears throat> some would say, wow, reading in systematic theology. That's amazing. Okay. Um, you have handouts for what we're going to do now. We're going to be looking at Hosea, the use of uh, um, Hosea 11.1 in Matthew. Um, <coughs> And uh, so turn to uh, Matthew uh, chapter two. So the Holy Family are going, they're, they're fleeing from Herod because he's killing all the children. <clears throat> Verse 14, Matthew two, Joseph Rose took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. And then you have verse 16. When Herod saw he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became enraged, <coughs> sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its environments from two years old and under, according to the time he, which he had ascertained from the Magi. Then that which was spoken to Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And we read that quotation yesterday. In verse 19, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the child and his mother. Go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life were dead. He arose, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Now, uh, Matthew's use, if you read many commentators, including evangelical commentators, this is seen as very notoriously difficult and a debated <laughs> text. Um, I have mentioned it a few times as a case of typology, but many see that that typology is really an eisegesis. It's a reading in virtually equivalent to um, allegory. And so how can Matthew... Uh, do what he's done. And in fact, there are three problems in this text. Number one is the one I mentioned before, and that is how can you turn history into prophecy? Because 11.1 in Hosea is history. Matthew says it's prophecy, quotes it, says this is fulfillment of that historical event. How can you do that? Uh, some would say that Matthew would have failed his uh, hermeneutics 101 test, asked the question about the genre thinking the historical genre of Matthew, uh, Hosea 11.1 was prophecy instead of history. The second problem in our text is that what Hosea attributes to the nation 
Matthew attributes to the, an individual, okay, Jesus. Now, how can that be? How, how can you take a passage applying to, uh, to a nation originally and apply it to an individual? Some think that that's a little bit of a wild hermeneutic. And third, and this is very interesting, that's why I read all the way to the end of verse 21, why use this quotation when they're entering into Egypt? Why say it fulfills coming out of Egypt? Why don't you use that? Why don't you pull that quotation down and put it right after verse 21, where it says he arose, took the child's mother, came into the land, and then came out of Egypt. That's where it belongs, it would seem, right? So why, why put it there? It's a, a little strange. Um, so those are three problems, and uh, commentators often focus on one or the other, and uh, there have been a variety of responses to this. One evangelical commentator said this passage is, quote, a great example of the manner in which the New Testament uses the old in the sense of misusing it. Especially, he says, it, it, it's especially a great example showing a uh, lack of interest in reproducing the original meaning of the Old Testament text, but reading in the Old Testament foreign Christological presuppositions. Uh, that is reading to the Old Testament foreign Christological presuppositions. Another evangelical commentator, <laughs> and I'm giving you evangelical commentators here, okay? We have a high view of scripture. Another has said, quote, this is the most troubling case of New Testament exegesis of the Old Testament. Others have viewed the use of Hosea 11.1 as merely mistaken by Matthew, somehow viewing Hosea 11.1 as a prophecy when it was only a historical reflection. Eugene Boring, who taught at the Bright Theological Seminary at, uh, on the campus of Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. He's a card-carrying New Testament scholar in the academic field, certainly not evangelical. <clears throat> um, he says, Matthew's use of scripture Matthew 1 and 2, including the Hosea 11 quotation, quote, is in contrast with its obvious original meaning. And the change he makes in the text itself make him subject to the charge of manipulating the evidence in a way that would be unconvincing to many. Still others have understood Matthew to be employing a faulty hermeneutic used elsewhere in Judaism for Christian interpreters should, uh, which Christian interpreters should not emulate but that nevertheless, the interpretive conclusion is inspired. So again, I mentioned this, that some see that, well, let's not follow what Matthew has done here. It's not a right exegetical method, but the conclusion is indeed inspired. And we've mentioned, uh, we've mentioned that's also a position of Richard Longenegger. <clears throat> so um, it appears that Matthew's interpreting Hosea 11.1, I would contend in the light of its relation to the entire chapter in which it is found and we'll see in light of the entire book. So remember God, what he said? He said, when one uh, reference is made to the Old Testament, the larger segment uh, really is in mind. I'm going to try to show you that that is the case right here. This is an example God did not mention but I think it's a, a great illustration of what God was saying, that one illusion or quotation draws with it the broad Old Testament context. So 
In Hosea 11, after alluding to Israel's exodus, and I want you now to turn to Hosea 11, put a marker in Matthew, turn to Hosea 11, please. Finishing because I got to finish this lecture. Right. Is it 10 after 11? Is that one? Well, we finish at one. We meant to have a five minute break or something. We're only around 10 past 12. Okay. 10 past 12 of the break. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so after alluding to Israel's exodus in verse one, look at Hosea 11 and 1. Uh, 11 and 1 out of Egypt, uh, when Israel was a youth, I loved him out of Egypt that I called my son. Um, <clears throat> after this reference, the history of the nation in their land is narrated briefly. And we're gonna find they didn't respond faithfully to God's deliverance of them from Egypt and to his prophetic messengers, exhorting them to be loyal to God, but they worshiped idols. And um, despite the grace God had shown them. So let's, let's look at verses two to four. The more they called them, that is the more the prophets called Israel, the more Israel went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals. They kept sacrificing uh, to the Baals um, and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I gave them grace. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. And I became them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. I bent down and fed them. <laughs> They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria will be their king. By the way, that translation in verse 5, they will not return to the land, actually is best read as, will they not return to the land? Uh, it actually is, uh, the translations differ on this, and it actually is a reference to them returning to the land. I'm curious, does any of your Bibles have it positively, like they will return to the land, or will they not return to the land? Anybody? Anybody? What, what does your say? The NRSV says they shall return. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I have a long excursus. Be happy to share it with you at lunch or afterward about why I think that is the best reading. So, um, so they will return to the land, uh, but Syria will be their king because they refuse to return to me. So consequently, what's going to happen with this lack of repentance? This 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 lack of response to God's love and grace. Well, what's the response? It's judgment in verses six and seven. Look at it. And the sword will whirl against their cities and demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they call them, uh, though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. So the judgment, however, will not be absolute as we read on. Um, because of God's compassion on the nation. Look, look at verse 8 and 9 about how this will not be an absolute judgment. Verse 8. So God says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? That's a rhetorical question. By the way, whenever you see a question in the Old Testament or the New, always answer it. Never read on. Because what will happen sometimes is the author will ask the question, expect you to give the answer, and then the next statement the author will make will depend on the answer. So you've got to answer that. Like Paul always asks these questions, especially in Romans, for example. Um, so 
when he says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? The idea is, I can't. How can I surrender you, O Israel? I can't. How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboyim? That's really like Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way, okay? Uh, my heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. When he says, I'll not destroy Ephraim again, I can't go into that. That's something I'll be happy to talk about afterwards. But basically, um, <clears throat> Ephraim is seen as in solidarity with Sodom and Gomorrah, who was destroyed. And so he's saying, there's a sense in which, because of your sense, sin, you were in solidarity with Sodom and Gomorrah. But, uh, and I destroyed them. And in some sense, you were in solidarity with him. Very hard deck here. But I'm not going to destroy you again. Very interesting. Bible's not easy. And I don't have enough time to go further on that. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an example of corporate solidarity with Ephraim having been in corporate solidarity with their, because of their sin with Sodom and Gomorrah. And in some way, sin is experiencing their destruction. But God won't destroy them again. Um, so God's compassion is said to express itself through future restoration of his people. Look, in verse 10, they will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar. And his sons will come trembling from the west. They'll come trembling like birds from Egypt. Like doves from the land of Assyria, I'll settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. And then I think verse 12 goes with actually chapter 12. So we'll stop at verse 11. Um, so uh, in the end time, there'll be a restoration. Um, several lands, but especially Egypt. You'll notice it says they'll come trembling, trembling from the west like birds from Egypt, also from Assyria. So there'll, there'll be a restoration from uh, many lands, but Egypt is one of them. Um, notice the lion imagery there in verse uh, 10, where he says he will roar like a lion and he will roar. Um, we're going to see that uh, verse um, 10, um, together with verse 11, is an allusion back to uh, numbers. So you have this. This has been uh, emailed to you, but I have it here. So you can pay attention to it here. You'll notice here's our passage in uh, Hosea. And now here we go with another attempt to show an allusion. You will have to decide. Let the reader understand. Um, so uh, God brings, this is Numbers 23, speaking of the nation, okay? God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of the wild ox. Um, behold, a people rises like a lion, or a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself. It will not lie down until it devours the prey, it drinks the blood of the slain. So this is the nation here. Uh, it's talking about them coming out of Egypt as a nation. Then chapter 24 of Numbers, it reiterates chapter 23, but now focusing on the individual leader. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He couches, he lies down, and as a, uh, oh, oh, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares to rouse him? <laughs> Okay. Now, 
Here, what we have are two similarities. Like a lion, uh, roaring, um, and, uh, and then here from Egypt. Is this enough for an illusion? Some uh, might say no. Um, remember, illusions are based on uniqueness. The only place where you get a lion and out of Egypt is here, here, and here. And it's more than accidental. This is talking about the Exodus. This is talking about a future Exodus from Egypt. I think while this is not as clear as some of the other illusions I've talked about, I think it's sufficient to refer to it as an illusion. You know what's interesting about this? If it is, Hosea is seeing the historical event of the Exodus. He's using it as a pattern for future prophecy. He's making a direct prophecy. I think he's seeing these texts as typological. He's using these texts and making a prophecy out of them. I think what it means is that these texts for him are typological of another coming out of Egypt. So Hosea himself in this very chapter is seeing the first Exodus as a type of the last Exodus. In fact, if you really uh, do a discourse analysis that is traced the logical narratival flow of thought, the main point is this in this chapter. That's what it's working toward. And so it begins with out of Egypt, verse one, then a return to Egypt, verse five, then coming out of Egypt again at the end in verses 10 and 11. And it's very important here to see, too, that what's true of the nation is true of the king. What's true of the king is true of the nation. That's going to become important pretty soon, okay? Because, and I'll anticipate, remember, Matthew sees what's true of the nation as true of an individual, okay? And so um, that may have precedent even very early in the Exodus narrative. Um, now, the problem here with this being illusion, an illusion is that it is the nation and the leader that's compared to a lion, not God. So that's a little bit of a problem. But if you notice, uh, in both cases, God is for the nation like the horns of the wild ox. Again, uh, he is for him like the horns of the wild ox. So uh, God is uh, saying that, 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 that he is this wild animal who will uh, powerfully deliver Israel. And uh, remember what's true of the people is true of the nation. And I think what's true of God <coughs> is true of the nation. And what's true of the nation Sometimes we as believers reflect an attribute of God. And so it may be that um, uh, this is taken and applied to God because he's going to use his power to deliver them. Just as here, he's going to use his power to deliver them, but he's called horns and wild ox here twice. But uh, now he takes the image of lion uh, for an image of uh, powerful deliverance. Um, so I, I think it's an illusion, but 
it, uh, it, you have to explain why is it applied to God and not the nation. That's my explanation of its corporate um, uh, solidarity. What's true of the people is true of God. What's true of God is often true of the people. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. Is, is Hosea that in, in his historical context say, talking about the exile and the return from exile yes. to the second exodus? Yes. Uh -huh. But then we. It's an end time exile. Right. Gotcha. That's what it is. An end time exile. Yeah. He's, he's not talking about, about the geographical exile in Babylon. Well, remember, we were just saying that um, I think they viewed that as an end time exile. Okay. okay. But we saw the end time motor stall, right? All those things weren't fulfilled. Okay. And so the motor got revved up again later when the Messiah comes on the scene. And even then, it was only inaugurated because all these things didn't physically come to pass. They'll be consummated physically in the new heavens and earth. Okay. Following me? Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy stuff. Um, but the exile, understand the exile, it's really important when it was fulfilled. And uh, I do think it's partially fulfilled when they go back from Babylon, but not fully. Okay. And so here, I, you know, the lens is just eschatological exile. I mean, you know, once we get the New Testament, we begin to see. Okay, yeah, it's inaugurated, it's not consummated, all these things. Oh, yeah, when it's fulfilled, it's not fully fulfilled. I mean, Hosea is not looking at any of that. He's just saying thick description, eschatological exile. Okay. And, and then you have to unpack that by the remaining course of redemptive history and progressive revelation. Um, so in both Numbers 23 and 24, God is said to be to them like the horns of the wild ox. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So in 24, so yeah. In, in Hosea, yeah. that is God. Yes. In Numbers 23, it's the people. That's just what and it means. And the leader. And the leader. People and the leader in 23. Mm -hmm. And then in 24, it's God again. No, no, no. No, it's the leader of the people. It's the leader. God is more than like the horns of the wild oxen. That's what God's compared to. God is. Okay. So it, it, in Numbers 24, is not talking about God? Yes, it is in terms not of a lion, but it's the horns of the wild ox. Does your Bible say something else? No, uh, I, I, I was in the translation that, that has the plural there in, in 24, 8. And the NIV has, has a plural there. But a plural for what? Yeah. So we, we've got God to... brought them out of Egypt. Yeah. They have the strength of a wild ox. Uh, uh, 24 8. They devour our salvation. So supposedly the people of Israel, with their arrows, they pierce them. And like a lion, they crouch and lie down. Like a lion has yeah. The Hebrew has feet. Okay. Yeah, uh, They're taking it as sometimes, sometimes he does refer to the nation. But uh, if, you, if you notice in Numbers 24, the he is developed in terms of an individual eschatological leader in 24-14. I, I just can't take time to do that, but where it says, um, 
I'll tell you what must come to pass in the latter days, verse 14. He took up this discourse. He talks about uh, a vision he has. Uh, a star will come forth from Jacob, a scepter from, uh, will rise from Israel, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that's the development of the lion from verse 9. Uh, we're in, in 24, 9. It says he couches like a lion. as a lion who dares rouse him, um, et cetera. Okay. Um, but... Some people uh, like the translators <laughs> differ with my interpretation. But the ESV then it looks like it's all the way talking about God. It, it's singular, not plural. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, God brings him out of Egypt, and it's for him like the ones of the wild ox. And then it can just say that he shall eat up the nations. Yeah. That meaning right. God is doing that. Right. But it doesn't say God is the lion. The people are the lion. And then the individual leaders align. That's my point. Okay. We're going to have to move on. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, all right. Um, we, we can chat about it at lunch if you want to. Um, but I've, I've got to try to. Um, I don't have a lot of time now. So I'm sorry about that. I'd love to continue to try to um, analyze this together with you, but maybe later. So, uh, Hosea, I think, is typologically using numbers 23 and 24. Does everybody see why I'm arguing that, regardless of whether you disagree or disagree? Um, okay, he's making the event into a prophecy. If this is an illusion, someone says that's a big capitalize those letters, Neil. Capital I F. Um, but again, it's, it's, I think I'm on great ground here because. Um, read a dissertation on the, uh, the use of the Old Testament and Hosea. Oh my gosh. Just <laughs> tried to tell the guy to publish it. He still hadn't published it. But Hosea is so filled with Old Testament illusions, it's amazing. And I'm going to mention some of those. More of them. Okay. And one of them right there is an 11 1, right? A reference back to the Exodus. So, um, so the main point or goal of Hosea 11, 1 through 11 is the accomplishment of Israel's future restoration from the nations, including Egypt. And as I said, the overall point, it climaxes with Israel coming out of Egypt at the end of time, another exodus. Now, um, so Hosea appears to understand that Israel's first exodus in chapter 11, verse 1, was to be recapitulated at the time of the last exodus. And the reason he probably understands chapter 11, verse 1, as to be recapitulated here, is because he is interpreting uh, the exodus references in Numbers 23 and 24, typologically. You see my point? Thank you. So um, what I want to look at now is the mention of a first exodus from Egypt outside of 11.1 occurs elsewhere in Hosea, and a future return from Egypt would appear to be implied by repeated prophecies of Israel returning to Egypt in the future. Um, so what we're going to see is throughout Hosea, there are two kinds of statements about Egypt the original coming out of Egypt at the Exodus, and a return to Egypt. Actually, there are three kinds of statements. 
a return to Egypt, and then a coming out of Egypt and a, and a final exodus. So let's look at the uh, this chart you have it. It's been sent to you, but just pay attention to this one. So the first exodus, uh, is, is mentioned in a number of places, like chapter two, verse 15. Uh, she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Um, and then Hosea 12, 13, but by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt. And likewise, Hosea 12, 9 um, refers to God says, I've been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, implying, again, from the time he brought them out of Egypt. And then we don't want to forget 11.1. That's a reference to the original Exodus, right? But then we have uh, references to a future return to Egypt and uh, also a coming out of Egypt. So notice Hosea 7.11, Ephraim has become a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. Clearly, this is referring to going to Egypt again, okay? Uh, again, in chapter 7, their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. Uh, this will be their derision in the land of Egypt when they return there again. Hosea 8, now he will remember their iniquity. He will punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. Chapter 9, verse 3, they will remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt. Hosea 9, 6, for behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them in. And then uh, chapter 1 and uh, verse 11 says that they will return from Egypt. Verse 11 the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. That's from the land of Egypt, by the way. Um, and that it is from the land of Egypt is clear because the next uh, chapter speaks of them uh, going up from the <laughs> land of Egypt. Chapter two, verse 15. She will sing there in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. So coming up from the land in 111, is, that's the eschatological exodus, led by one Roche ahead, a leader. Um, so that's what um, uh, 111 is about. Also, remember 11.5 that we read, uh, where some translations have, they will not return to Egypt. Others have, they will return to Egypt, which I think is uh, the best reading. Um, so we have that there. And then finally in 11, uh, uh, yeah, um, here, uh, it's a 12.9. Oh, well, can't get that on. So uh, what you can't see, but it's on your handout uh, on, on computers. Uh, I mentioned 111. That's not on here. Um, oh, it didn't show up. So. 
can't do it. So uh, in, in that right column, you should add Hosea, uh, should be added Hosea 111, 11, 5, and then of course, Hosea 11, 10 through 11, which says like birds that return from Egypt. So, um, so what you have then is uh, not just in Hosea 11, do you have out of Egypt, return to Egypt in the middle, and then come out of Egypt at the end, but in the nearby chapters throughout the book, you have repetitions of the original coming out of Egypt, multiple references, multiple references to the return to Egypt, and then multiple references to coming out of Egypt. So in light of chapter 11, that begins with out of Egypt, concludes with out of Egypt, eschatologically, and the context does the same thing. I think we could say, Hosea, yes, Hosea, Hosea, you know, you mentioned repeatedly the first Exodus, and you mentioned repeatedly this end-time Exodus, especially in chapter 11. Are they similar? Of course you'd say yes. Why are they similar, Hosea? I think he would say, because one is a recapitulation of the other. And uh, I think he would say that one therefore foreshadows the other. So what I'm saying is in Hosea itself, the Hosea sees the first Exodus as a type of the end time Exodus. In fact, that's pretty clear from this uh, first part of the chart that we looked at. He turns the event of the Exodus here into a prophecy, thus seeing those events as foreshadowing another Exodus. So um, that is the rationale. Matthew's using Hosea's hermeneutic. He's not doing something uniquely on his own. Hosea already had an understanding of the typology of the first Exodus, even within chapter 11. In fact, Dwayne Garrett has said this, we, look, we need look no further uh, than Hosea 11, actually, to understand that Hosea too believed that God followed patterns in working with his people. Here, the slavery in Egypt, is the pattern for a second period of enslavement in an alien land. They'll return to Egypt, verse 5, and the exodus from Egypt is the type for a new exodus in verses 10 through 11. Thus, the application of typological principles to Hosea 11, 1 by Matthew is in keeping with Hosea's own hermeneutical method himself. So the problem of um, Matthew making history into a prophecy, we got to move that problem back to Hosea. Hosea, how can you do that? Some would say, maybe some would therefore say Hosea is wrong, but it's an Old Testament hermeneutic, and Matthew's just following that. Yeah. Um, in Luke 9 31, it appears Jesus also taught that there's going to be an act. He actually uses the word exodus. Discussing his exodus. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, Jesus certainly had this concept that, that he was introducing an exodus. Now, recall there's a second problem, but let me stop right there. That's our first problem. Why does Hosea appear to turn history into prophecy? I, I, I have, for myself, I feel comfortable with the answer <coughs> that I have given. You'll have to, again, I'll say what the reader understands 
uh, decide for themselves. But any questions before we go to the second problem, which is why have the quotation from Hosea when they enter Egypt instead of when they come out of Egypt? But any, any questions so far? Um, okay. So what we've seen, we've seen that uh, again and again, it's not just a reference repeatedly to a past exodus and to a final future exodus, but it's also a reference to their going to return. So verse five says that in chapter 11. So again, this is context. So it's very appropriate that this quotation from 11.1 would be appended to them entering into Egypt, right? Because that's part of the contextual meaning of the whole uh, pattern. They came out, they're going to return. So um, that solves that. Uh, it's, it's right to put it right at the beginning when they enter Egypt because Hosea repeatedly says part of the prophecy is Israel will return to Egypt. Um, I'm skipping a lot here because of time. Then, then the third problem. The third problem is how can you go? How can you go, uh, go from a nation and apply it to an individual? Well, what we did up here, even right here, we've got what's true of the nation is true of the leader of the nation coming out of Israel. So we've already got solidarity right there, which Moses and Mo and, and, and Isaiah's. Hosea is alluding to that in, in verses 10 and 11. So um, that answers that already, but we can go further and, um, and say, if, if we go to chapter 1 and verse 11, go to 111. Again, the sons uh, of Judah, sons of Israel, will be gathered together. They will point for themselves one head. One leader will go up from the land that is of Egypt, for great will be the day of Israel. So it's not just the nation who's going to be coming out of Egypt in the future Exodus, but also a leader. And so, um, and, and we find that that leader is elaborated upon in chapter three, verse five of Hosea, where it says, Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord in the last days. By the way, we have that same word, trembling. Don't we go come trembling, remember, in, uh, in, in our passage, chapter 11 at the end? Um, <clears throat> the sons of Israel will come trembling from the west. They'll come trembling like birds from Egypt. It's a different Hebrew word here in 3.5, but it's a synonym. And so there's a connection. And, um, and so again, we've got, we've got David a king associated with their return as we had the Rosh associated with their return in 1.11. And so it, it, uh, what's true of the one is probably true of the other, especially in the line here of Numbers 23, but we can say more. 
of why Matthew may have um, applied its true of the nation to an individual. And um, <clears throat> this within Matthew itself. Notice Matthew 16, 16. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Hosea 1.10 is, it speaks of those who are returning, the sons of the living God. Um, this is the only place where uh, son of the living God occurs. Now, you do have sons of the living God occurring in Romans 9 because they quote this text and apply it to Gentiles, that the Hosea prophecy of the return of Israel, uh, sons of the living God, uh, uh, apply to Gentiles as part of the restoration, thus, in, in, in my view, uh, making the Gentiles part of true Israel. But really, this is the only place uh, where living uh, where son and living God occurs here and here, and then Romans 9, where it's quoted. This just cries out for, uh, uh, since this, I think this is an allusion then in Matthew 16 to 110, which is the restoration prophecy. And it makes sense again if, if Matthew has the view that it's the Messiah. Uh, who was identified with the sons of the living God at, at the end time exodus, um, then it makes sense that he would apply Hosea 11.1 about the nation coming out uh, to the individual Messiah because he does it here. But there's more why he would do this. I mentioned Dwayne Garrett is a very good commentator and um, uh, I recommend his commentary on Hosea, who used to be colleagues at Gordon Connell Theological <laughs> But uh, when he became professor there, he gave uh, an inaugural lecture, as often happens when people become professors at, at schools. And, and after this, I'll, we'll, we'll take a break. Um, <clears throat> and what he showed was he, he talked about the use of the Old Testament in Hosea. And then later he had one of his students do a dissertation on that. But he wrote uh, and gave a paper on the use of the Old Testament in Hosea. And it was very interesting. It was mainly the use of the Pentateuch, especially Genesis. And he says, sometimes the iniquity of Israel in Hosea was seen to follow the pattern of the disobedience of the first Adam. Uh, or of Jacob and Jacob's disobedience in chapter 12. Um, that is, Jacob's disobedience is mentioned in Hosea 12. Um, so individuals from Genesis, like Adam or Jacob, in their disobedience would be taken and would be applied to the nation. So what was true of the individual and to be applied to the nation. You'll remember this passage in um, uh, Hosea 6, 7, like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. That's a debated text. Some don't think it's about Adam. 
Uh, I think it is. Uh, and I think that's in the local theology, the Book Scripture Indexing, where I discussed this. I, I, I think it is. Uh, Warfield uh, thought it was. Uh, and I think that uh, Garrett does too. But many don't. It's greatly debated. Um, and nevertheless, uh, Garrett sees what was true of Adam's disobedience is true of the nation. What was true of Jacob's disobedience was true of the nation. And that's mentioned uh, in, in Hosea 12, uh, 2 to 5. But also you have positive statements like Abraham, where, uh, uh, well, in this case, actually Jacob again, uh, it's, it's spoken to Jacob uh, to make your seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered because of multitude, but that's the period on the Abrahamic promise. Um, and, and it's reapplied and addressed directly for the nation in Hosea. Chapter one and verse uh, 10. And we've been talking about 111, where this Rosh leads Israel out of uh, Egypt. But in 110, it says, um, uh, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured. So that's very positive. What uh, the, the, the promise to one is applied to the many. Likewise, uh, the valley of Achor. A-C-H-O-R is mentioned from Joshua 7, 24 to 26. <laughs> That's where Achan and his family were taken to be executed. But uh, this is taken by Hosea in reverse to indicate that God would reverse Israel's judgment of defeat and exile, and they would not be exterminated for her sin, but would have a hope of redemption. That's chapter 2, verse 15. Listen to it. Then I'll give her vineyards from there. And the valley of Achor, which was judgment, is now a door of hope. So he applies this uh, place of judgment for the sin of Achan to, um, to the nation. And um, so he's always going from the one patriarch or the one Israelite to the many, either from Genesis or Joshua. And um, instead, Matthew goes from the many to the one, but he's using the same one in the many hermeneutic. Hosea goes from one to many. Matthew's going from the many to the one. It's the same kind of what's true of the many is true of the one. What's true of the one is true of the many. So um, I, I think from different angles, I think we can see a legitimate rationale for Matthew uh, applying what's true of the nation to the one individual Messiah. Uh, Jesus Christ. Um, now, Matthew contrasts Jesus as the son with Hosea's son. The latter came out of Egypt, was not obedient, was judged, but would be restored. While the former did what Israel should have done. He came out of Egypt, perfectly obedient, didn't deserve judgment, suffered for it anyway, for guilty Israel, and uh, caused Israel could be restored to God and ultimately uh, the world. So Matthew portrays Jesus as recapitulating the history of Israel because he sums up Israel in himself. They kept, they kept having these commissions to please God. They kept disobeying. Finally, one comes who will do so. Um, the attempt to kill the Israelite infants, the journey of Jesus and his family back into Egypt, 
And back to the promised land again is the same basic pattern of Israel of old. He did what Israel should have done. So the quotation fits into that pattern. Um, why don't we take a break and I'll make a brief conclusion and then we'll go to our next lecture. <laughs>